Hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes. I'm an actor and an ambassador for both the Woodland and Wildlife Trusts. And this is my podcast. A podcast for those of you who, like me, think that our natural world is incredible. Whether a naturalist fueled by human culture or sculptor obsessed with the griffin vulture, I get to talk with people who are dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. This week's guest is none other than the president of the Bat Conservation Trust. Or is that the president of the Hampshire Ornithological Society? Or the president of the Southampton Natural History Society? Turns out he is all of those things. And he is also a vice president for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, Butterfly Conservation and the RSPCA, as well as a patron of AfriCat, World Land Trust, Population Matters, Compassion and World Farming, the Humane Research Trust, the Nature Watch Foundation, Raptor Rescue, the Fleet Pond Society, Birding for All, the Seahorse Trust, Orca, the Fox Project. The list goes on. Truth is, this week's guest Naturalist, television presenter, writer, photographer, conservationist, filmmaker, polymath, needs little introduction. So, a little earlier this year, I headed out into the New Forest, the site of much of my own childhood as well as of our guests, to go for a walk in search of one particular beech tree. A beech tree loved by one of our country's most prominent environmental campaigners, a.k.a. that guy with the amazing hair from The Really Wild Show. So, without further ado, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Chris Packham. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw, when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. So, we're in the New Forest. We're on the west side of the New Forest. East. <laughs> I'm all with my left and right. <laughs> we're on the east side of the New Forest. You grew up here over in Southampton. You're still based over here. Yeah. I grew up on the west side. Yeah. Over in a little place called Fording Bridge. I know it well. Which is the best side? Probably the west. <laughs> east is close to Southampton. So mm-hmm. it's quite a lot of significant development on what we call the water side. It's got a lot busier. And I think the West. I have a, a friend who lives on that side. Seems a little bit more peaceful over there. But the New Forest is a place that's under a tremendous amount of pressure. It's overgrazed mm-hmm. uh, to an enormous extent. There's not a lot of regeneration take place. It's not botanically as rich as it should be, and therefore uh, there are not the inverts, birds, and everything else. So it's it's a place which is fraught with all sorts of political and social divisions, which are very difficult to to manage. A lot of people don't realise that it's farmed. Like the, the yeah. ponies aren't just wild ponies no. that are roaming, having a lovely no. time. No, there, there, they are stuck. Hence, the, there are too many of those wild ponies at the moment. There was a scheme that came in some time ago to pay per head for conservation grazing. And obviously anyone who's being paid per head puts more head out to collect more conservation grazing subsidies. So I think the Natural England recommendation was somewhere between four and a half and 5,000. And some Freedom of Information requests revealed that there were well, I think it was nudging 13,000 or even more. So for a period of time, you know, there's been too much grazing pressure. I can't put all the blame on on the stock. I mean, I think there were more deer in the New Forest than there ever have been in recorded times. 
Is that partly because of COVID or is that pre-COVID? No, it, I think again it's very difficult for Forestry Commission to manage those. When I was a kid there were far more keepers there um, and of course there wasn't the public access. I mean you'd need to be a, a very brave and competent shooter to, to shoot in a national park as busy as the new forest is mm -hmm. due to public safety concerns and, and that's you know and there were fewer keepers and, and, and again the way that the, the deer need to be managed you know and, and the way that the, the carcasses are handled has, has made life enormously more difficult for them. So in the area we're walking at the moment, there is significant deer control. And I mean, you can see that we're struggling through some brambles that have regenerated. Mm -hmm. If you look here, you'll see, look, small beech trees. The place is covered with oak trees, all of this hazel has come up. And in the summer, you can't see through here. Sure. If we were on the open forest within the, the National Park now, we'd be able to see us you know I mean, even in the winter we're you know we're peering through you can imagine the summer this is just a wall of green hazel there's holly regenerating all the small beech that you can see that's retained mm -hmm. its leaves there there's masses of oak and i hate to say it, but this is solely down to you know Shooting intensive deer. deer management and as much as you know we don't like killing animals if we want a, a rich mosaic of habitats you know and if we want woodland butterflies and woodland birds then in the absence of large predators we, we've got to take matters into our own hands. Well that's but a question then what do you think about the reintroduction of a few more carnivores? Well I mean it's been done very successfully in Europe and, and people there are able to live alongside them I think that it's been a long time that we've been isolated from living with those animals and we've become very comfortable in their absence and there's an enormous amount of uh, misunderstanding that's promoted in the mainstream media about the potential impact of animals such as lynx and wolf. But I mean, look, Belgium is a tiny, overcrowded country. It has a, a wolf pack, <laughs> you know. And uh, I mean, obviously, lynx, which has a far less obvious, and I say obvious, I mean visibly obvious, impact on, on people's lives. They've been successfully re reintroduced into many you know, European countries and they've spread into others. Certainly there are places in the UK where those species could be returned, but it's not just about the landscape, it's not just about the ecology, it's also about the social impact. And we're, and we're just not ready yet, unfortunately. You know, we've struggled with the beaver. It's, it's a grotesque embarrassment that it's taken us so long to make any meaningful progress. And yet, I go onto social media last night and I see an image of someone who has snared, or whether it snares in the back of the pickup, um, or shot a beaver, and they're bragging about it. And this was posted by um, a shooter on a, a forum last night. And you just sort of think, you know, it's so difficult to make progress here. I mean, mm -hmm. I, th I think one of the problems that we face when it comes to conservation, perhaps the most significant, is that we're living in the second, you know, when it comes to the league table, country in the world where more land is owned by less people than anywhere else. So we, we as conservationists simply don't have access to the, you know, the space that we require to make a meaningful difference. Sure. I mean, yes, we can reintroduce, we can reinstate, we can restore all of these habitats, but we just don't have the space available to us to do it without significant interference or significant resistance. And that's really, really disheartening, frankly. And as much as we've tried to win the hearts and minds, in the contemporary world, you know, it's like everything is so divisive. There is no middle ground. There's no, no one wants to creatively discuss anything and come to a compromise. People entrench themselves with that polarisation, which is so dangerous. Is that, is that modern man? 
or is that man in general? Have we become a species that likes to view things in black and white and polarised? Well, speaking opposites. as an autistic person, my world is black and white. But, <laughs> but, but, but it's black and white in the sense that you know, I, I want to succeed, I don't want to fail. I recognise that in order to succeed sometimes, you have to succeed on several fronts and, and, and in several terms, not merely your own. Sure. And that's part and parcel of making progress. I'd rather take a, you know, half a step forward and three steps backwards. Um, and if sometimes you, you, know, you can't make the strides that you really want to make, but it's better to be moving in the right direction. Are we succeeding? Are we making half steps forward? No. Because, <laughs> I mean, that, you, you recently did an interview with David Attenborough that went out on Winterwatch recently, and you asked him that question, and he very magnanimously was, seemed to be quite optimistic in his response, on, on the record, certainly. Well, I, I remain optimistic that we have the capacity to recover, uh-huh. but at the moment we, we have to say that, you know, that we as environmentalists and conservationists have been failing. Look, I'm 61 years old. Since 1970, which I remember with great clarity, we've lost 69% of the world's wildlife. You know, even in, if you look at more recent you know, time, look at the last 10 years, the amount of damage that's been done here in the UK, one of the most nature-depleted set of nations in the world, is ongoing. We're still being ridden roughshod over by insane infrastructure projects, which are enormously, envi- enormously environmentally damaging, like HS2. Um, we've just commissioned a coal mine. I mean, I have to bang my head against the wall to believe that's true. <laughs> and we're still granting licenses for fossil fuel exploration. Yeah. You know, they don't get it, or if they do get it, they're just in it because of their vested interest, and, and their vested interest will kill us all. So as much as we've developed the technologies to, as I say, you know, understand the roots of our problems, and sometimes even to address those problems. And certainly within the field of conservation, you know, we've got a very good idea what we need to do to protect habitats, ecosystems, species. And when we've tried and tested that, and we, and we see you know, great projects in terms of reintroductions and, and, and other conservation initiatives, but they're too small. They haven't been rolled out broadly enough and rapidly enough to make any meaningful difference, hence sure. the ongoing declines. So if we're failing as a species, if we're not succeeding as a species, are you succeeding as an individual? No. Are you punching above your weight in order I'm, to compensate I'm, for I'm, the... I'm riven with guilt every day, <laughs> you know, because I get up and realise that I haven't and are currently not making the progress that I need to make. You know, I'm, I'm about to take some time out and part of that is for, a, you know, an artistic venture, but part of it is because I've got to take stock and think my methodology is not, is not functional, it's not... It's not optimal, efficient, or anything. And yet, it's probably, arguably, more functional than most because of your. I mean, you're the president well, of I, X number of trusts and vice president of Y number of trusts and patron to Z number of trusts. Well, I keep trying. I mean, you know, I get up every day with a, a ferocious determination to try and make a positive difference for the natural world. Uh-huh. You know, and and I do that in a considered way rather than a, an emotionally motivated or. Or anything else, but look, not emotionally motivated. Well, I, 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 no. I mean, I, I need, you know, good science. I need a, a foundation of fact behind me to make my arguments. There's, you know, that I'm, if I'm arguing against illegal shooting of raptors in the UK, firstly, I need the evidence that that's actually taking place. Mm-hmm. I've got it. Secondly, I need the evidence to say that it's having a a disastrous impact on their populations. I've got it, and, and thirdly, I need the you know the the information to say well this is you know deleterious to our the ecology of our countryside, sure. and I've got it. So you know I can I, I'm on a sort of a 
a no-lose situation with that sort of argument. Well, one would think so, but... But you know, you're, you're um, suggesting this is the work of wild justice? I work with Mark Avery and Ruth Tingay yeah. and with our not-for-profit, and our mission is to you know, explore a niche that the other NGOs haven't felt compelled to explore, and that is looking at the legislature that's in place to make sure that it's robust enough, that it's being upheld and it's being implemented. And very often, I'm afraid, it, it's not. Okay, so well, that's all the big stuff. <laughs> is it the big stuff? Well, look, just one thing. I, you know, I, that all sounds like I'm sort of laden with doom. I'm, I'm frustrated, angry and disappointed, which I am the latter three. I just think this is a time where we are reaching, you know, the, the last stand situation. And we as campaigners, protesters, whoever we are, need to stop and think, our methods, are they working? Well, I would argue that they're not working. Uh, people take to the streets, they peacefully demonstrate, they glue themselves to things, they, they throw soup over things, they chain themselves above motorway gantries, they, ga they gather news under extremely difficult circumstances when it comes to keeping these issues in the public eye. Um, some of them are, are loathed for doing that because of people's short-sightedness and also because people, they take a, a, an affront to their methods, but they do that before they actually consider their motives. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I support, you know, Just Stop Oil and so on and so forth because, you know, I'm compelled to think about their motives. These are people who are terrified of the future and they're terrified of not being heard and they're struggling for a voice in a, a media which is overcrowded with distractions, all sorts of nonsense going on all the time, there to keep our eyes off of the bigger issues which are impacting our lives and, and our planet. Do you think it's working? No. So my they still commission the coal mine. Well, they haven't stopped HS2. Well, then um, the question is then at what point does a very high profile television conservationist like yourself do something that's not peaceful protest? That's a very good question. And, because and it does sound like we're heading in that direction. Well, we, again, you know, our mantra has been that non-violent direct action has had a very effective uh, past and the, the things that are frequently cited are civil rights movement, suffragettes, you know, salt marsh, mm -hmm. uh, all of those sorts of things. But behind those, there was a lot of other action taking place that wasn't that peaceful. I'm not advocating at this point that, you know, we do anything violent. I'm saying that we have to consider the fact that we're not succeeding. Our methods are not working. Therefore, we must rethink rapidly, not just continue. I mean, I, I've lived to but an the pushback age. against you is violent, like you're getting things, they, oh. the corpses thrown over your fence and I think there was a fire started at your gate. But like, mm. The, the, the counter-movement, that of get out of our way, we want to farm where we want to farm, or we want a road where we want a road, or we want a coal mine, they're not afraid of being violent and aggressive and killing and destructive. No, no they're not. But again, you know, my mother would say, you know, don't stoop to their level. I, I'm not a violent person, I'm a peaceful person. You know, I, I like to at least idealise that we solve our problems through dialogue, through mm. understanding and mutual respect. But again, I'm 61 years old, I've got to do something, I'm running out of time, that's the bottom line, you know. And I don't want to leave this world in a worse place than when I inherited it. And it wasn't in a brilliant place then, if I'm no. honest with you, it had suffered centuries of depredation and decay. But so at least the population was smaller and biodiversity was richer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but unfortunately we had rickets and plague and, and things like that. I mean, I love science and I love the advancement of science and I love all of those things. I don't think we need to look here for science to save us. I think we've got to look to ourselves to mm -hmm. save our species on this planet. We're not worried about life, by the way, on life, life on Earth will just yeah, continue. Yeah, yeah, it'll keep on going. 
Yeah. Um, okay, where are we? What, what are we looking right, at Right, I here, brought Chris? you to show you this tree because I lived in this block of woodland for 12 years and there isn't a tree here that I haven't rubbed uh, bark to shoulders with. And this for me is the finest tree here. It's a beach pollard. Trying to judge its age is quite difficult because pollarded trees live a lot longer than, than trees left to their own growth form. It's got this remarkable girth, some graffiti from the early 1900s and from the 1800s. Beech bark holds graffiti for a long time, mm -hmm. which is quite interesting. And it rises into a magnificent crown. And of course, we're standing here in the winter, so it's, it's a naked crown at the moment. But in the spring, in the early days of May, uh, this is illuminated like a giant green cathedral. When the light comes through those freshly burst beech leaves, they are a remarkable colour. You can be bathed in green light. The, um, the, the floor goes grey. And then, of course, in autumn, it goes golden. And I've sat here, just here at the foot of this tree for, I should say, actually longer than 12 years, about 15 years. And I used to come here with my two dogs, Itchy and Scratchy. And um, after everything I've told you, this is where I would come to get my head together and put myself in perspective. Because, you know, because I go up to this tree and I think, you know, if trees could talk, you know, behind the sort of, you know, a rigorous adhesion to science, there's a, there's a romantic lurking in my soul. And, you know, and, and I sort of touch this tree and I think, Janet, go on then, tell me what you've seen. How many people have lived and died, kissed and cried beneath this tree? How many, you know, lies have been told? How many, I mean, who, who knows? People could have been murdered here, yeah. you know. But, I mean, I just, you know... I just want to go to my grave and this tree be still, still here. standing and strong. You know, it's, been a, it's become a massive part of my life. It's totemic. And, and the, what I like about it is I sit here and however you know, important I think the events of the day are or some, you know, something rolling in my life is, it's immediately dispelled because this is a humbling machine. Mm -hmm. you know, this just sets me in my, my place. It sets us in our place. Because we, you know, we struggle to think of you know, time spans. I mean, this tree is at least 350. Yeah. Some people have suggested to me it could be 450 years old. You know, that is an inconceivable amount of time for us to try and contemplate. We don't work on that time scale. But the natural world does, you know. And, and, and there are still a thousand year oaks in the, in the forest itself. Yeah. So they've been here longer than yeah. the definition of what the new forest is, was. Yeah, is. exactly. This bough got too heavy for its own good and it came down and it, initially I was really disturbed by that because it sort of destroyed the symmetry of the, the tree. And for a long time, all these, these branches that you can see that have decayed over here. So I would, I, there's a branch here. I would come here and I'd pick all this up like this and I'd throw it all over there. And I, I, and was I, that pile all you then? Yeah, that pile was all, all <laughs> me. And, and then I would clear all this up and, and, and I, I would wonder why am I clearing the area beneath, the immediate area beneath this tree of all of the detritus, all these twigs and things. Do you get any nice wildflowers here? Uh, under the, it's in the beach increasingly stack, better, get... yes, because of the deer management. So yeah. all this ivy that's, uh, sorry, holly, holly that's coming up here. This wasn't here. This has only got away recently because yeah. of the, and all that bramble that's sneaking down towards the tree here. That was a little tiny clump up by the sister tree there. So yeah, things are beginning to improve here thanks to the conservation management that the family who own it are running out, you know, which is really, really good. And it's not just about the deer management, the, the, you know, the, the forest is being managed here, it's being cleared, wide, uh, the rides are being made wide, ponds have been put in, wildflowers are being planted. So it's a sort of a, a rewilding scheme in, within this area, which is beginning to pay some, some dividends. Can you relax here? Like, do you, are you someone who goes to nature to relax? Because you strike me as someone who enters what some people would call a peaceful grove and 
and you would notice the pigeon corpse that we saw on the way in or yeah, the fungus that's growing on that old beach over there and the holly that's just emerged and the brambles that are coming through there and the, like can you relax in nature because most people can yeah i think i um i find security in these sorts of spaces and that's it because it's old no, because I'm on my own. I'm invariably on my own here. So, Sorry. I, you know, no, that's right. <laughs> I'm enjoying this exception. <laughs> the, um, I didn't put that on my CV. <laughs> so, I mean, I spent a lot of time, you know, wandering the woods and so forth as a child, you know, to find that, you know, separation from other people because I wasn't comfortable in their presence and, and, and nor they mine. So, um, is that why you're still in the New Forest? Because this was somewhere where you found security back then? Because, I mean, I know you, you tried to live in France for a, a little while. You were yeah. there for a few years. Yeah. Is um, there a reason why you came back here? Well, my partner lives on the Isle of Wight, and my father lived until recently in Southampton. And um, so I had, I had, you know, had practical reasons to, to be here. Mm-hmm. But um, I, don't, I don't know. Like, you know, for me, this is the fabric of my life. You know, this is what's made me. The smells, the sounds, the, the shapes of all of this environment, this oak, you know. Um, but that's annoying because that's what I say. Because I'm a new forest boy as well. So yeah. I always say it's the, it's the bracken, it's, the, it's the, the blood red clay streams that run through down in Ogden's. It's, it's like, because it's my smell. Chris. Yeah, It's that's not it. your smell, it's my smell. Well, it's ours. <laughs> it's, it's made us. I mean, you know, I... The, the River Itchen where I grew up, and I, I mm-hmm. you know, say, you know, that paraphrase Norman McLean, that, that river runs through me, you know, there's the, just, I, I, I bled in it, swam in it, nearly drowned in it, you know, <laughs> laughed in it and, and watched pike in it, you know. The, the, I think these things, are, for me, they're very formative and, 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 and they're very important. They do form a sort of a, a foundation to who I am. You know, as a child and as a teenager in early 20s, you know, I struggled. I mean, I loathed myself because... I didn't understand my condition and you know that was exhausting and dangerous and I've had to find a way I suppose of I would say liking myself I don't think I've achieved that point yet but but at least sort of you know reconciling the fact that you know uh, uh, who I am mm-hmm. and, and I, I just like the idea that, that you know that this is my space you know and this and as a community this as I spent a lot of time in this particular wood then I do feel very temporarily a part of it you know there were there were tracks that were have, i've left through this this woodland that uh, you know that tell my stories sure. and, and i can go to those places and i can stir those memories and relive those stories and, and i kind of need that sometimes so i suppose am i relaxed no am i am i sort of more comfortable yes am i content no am i connected yes because of the smells and because I know all the species that live here and I know where their homes are and I've seen them at their homes I've watched them under the you know in in dawns and dusks and under the cover of darkness so did you did you discover this because I mean there's you mentioned your father and you mentioned your mother earlier and you mentioned your condition which is uh, Asperger's and a lot of it's well documented in your memoirs and in television shows so I won't sort of go over all of it in, in great detail but one thing that is very clear to me is that your father nurtured, supported, had a pre-existing interest in the natural world from which you could feed. 
So did he bring you out here? Was, oh, yes, yeah. Was he instrumental in you becoming... Yeah, I mean, my father was massively boy. into military history and he, he, he was an engineer. But he was a bit of a polymath. My dad was into... Well, put it this way. You know, he was into all of the things that my mother wasn't. And that was, uh, you know, that I, I generated some conflict in the family, but it was mm -hmm. great for me because my mum was into poetry. My mum was into music. She was into art, all of those sorts of things. So she'd take me to the art galleries and read me poetry. My father would take me to the military museums, the castles and so on and so forth. And I mean, I grew up in the 60s. You know, we, we, initially we didn't have a car. And then we had one car which belonged to my father. So when it came to nagging, you know, it, I had to go to my father's knee and say, Dad, 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 take me to the new forest, Dad. I want to see a Dartford warbler. And my father would comply because my father had a preoccupation with the acquisition of knowledge. Okay. You know, he, he I th and I fully, you know, uh, agree with that. You know, knowledge is different than information. You can get information off of your phone from Wikipedia, but it doesn't give you context. It gives, all it does is give you isolated facts. My father liked the idea that you would assemble enough facts to, to, set, you know, to, to be able to build a framework where you would have a wider understanding of natural history, history, the world, He's whatever. He's an engineer. Happened. Yeah. Has a holistic system of everything interconnected. Exactly. And so, you know, he would, was therefore ferociously dedicated to satisfying my quest for knowledge. And but I, did he also use you to satisfy, satisfy yeah, his quest for knowledge? I'm sure he did, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I, I have a stepdaughter, Megs, and, and I remember, like, getting tag, tadpoles and getting them to metamorphose on the kitchen table in a jam jar, which uh -huh. I hadn't done since I was a child myself. And it is so... And you have a, you know, young child yourself, yeah. so you're going to go through the same thing. You will do things that you did as a child and, and, and things I wish I did as a child. <laughs> of course, exactly. Yeah, right. And, um, and, and you will see them from a different perspective. And, and they will be as bright, as beautiful, as wonderful. But you, you'll be seeing them as an adult. So to be able to go back to those things, I think is, I don't blame my father for taking me to all of those castles that he wanted to go to. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and reading all of those labels. I, you know, I know when the Battle of Agincourt, Cressy, I, I know, you know, all of these things. And for me, that is, I, I like knowing that. And um, there's one thing though, so I was going through my books at the moment, I'm cataloguing and putting them back on the shelves after the house move. And um, my father subsequently died, and obviously I, he had an enormous collection of um, military history books. And I've got um, the vast majority of those. And what's interesting was, I, I, I buy them, buy my father books all the time, he just consume them. So I'd buy him one for Christmas or birthday. And I knew that after I'd given it to him, he would then want to obviously speak to me about the contents of the book. And I, so therefore... You've had to read them all before you go I to would, So I look them, and, I, and I, I used to have to read them by not opening the pages so they looked red. <laughs> and I, sometimes I have to skim read them so I just know exactly what you're talking about if it was a subject, you know, an area that I'd not been reading about. Uh -huh. So I would pre-read all of these books, you know, sometimes literally on, the, on his birthday before I rapidly wrapped them and took them over. And then, of course, two weeks later, he'd start going on about Marshall Ney or something. And uh, thankfully, I just about remember enough about, you know, what role he played at Waterloo. So, yeah, I'm very grateful to my father for encouraging and fueling. And I mean, it's more than like I read that he, he helped you boil a pilot head whale. Oh, a pilot whale head. Sorry. Well, my dad liked to challenge. You know, <laughs> boiling the head of a whale is quite. Yeah, balanced. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, how did that go? Well, the, not from the neighbours' point of view, very badly. You know, the whole of Middenbury, a suburb of Southampton, felt smelt like a whaling station from the 1800s for the best part <laughs> of two weeks. 
so no that wasn't I mean I don't think we were ever popular with our neighbours to be quite honest with you that was down to me not down to my parents who were very sociable and you know considerate people but you know. oh they'll all be walking around now saying you know he lived next door when we were younger <laughs> yeah. it's that guy off the telly yeah yeah I mean I, I, yeah I bear that whenever I go home we've got the same neighbours that we had when I was a child they're far more interested in me now than they were when I was a little kid <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, in terms of Megan and tadpoles, you talk in your memoirs about you tasting and trying tadpoles, like all good zoologists in training need to do. Yeah. Um, did you get Megan to eat a tadpole? No, I got her to put wasps on her nose. I got her to sort of handle everything. I didn't ever want her to grow with any prejudice against any type of life. So she sort of mucked in. So she would get bitten and stung and scratched by things. From in the name of science. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and we would dissect things when she was young. I remember finding a squirrel outside the house. How she was, about six, I suppose. And I said, do you know how the squirrel works? And she looked at me and I said, you know, well, we need to find out how the squirrel works. So one of the ways we can find out is by taking it to pieces. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we started dissecting roadkill and things like that to sort of feel that, hopefully stimulate that thing. I did also take her to quite a few castles and quite a few art galleries. I remember taking her to the, one of the Brit art things and uh, she's no fan of the Chapman Brothers, put it that way. <laughs> but I, I had this thing, so, you know, I, I would take her and I'd have a rigid rule whereby I'd say, right, you know, to myself, I'd say, right, I'll take Megs to an art gallery and be in there for one hour only, even if it was fascinating from my perspective. I'd take her in there for one hour and then we would leave and have an ice cream. And my cunning plan was that she would, she'd always be left wanting more and not, never bored by, you know, conceptual art or whatever it happened to be. Uh-huh. I didn't work, actually, completely far. <laughs> so makes it still... Oh, it's failed for now, though. I mean, yeah. there's so many things that our parents take us through yeah. when we're younger that then come back to, not haunt us, but come back to drive us, if anything. Yeah. Is that where... The, you, you said earlier that you're going to take a break for a few months to, uh, to do some art, to make some sculptures. Is that, that's obviously coming from your mother's side, I think. That's yeah, my mum used to take me to Southampton Art Gallery, and it's a provincial gallery, but it's got a really nice collection. And I still go and look at the paintings there that I knew as a boy, and they speak very differently to me now. But I remember my mum standing alongside a Stanley Spencer, and I was being really fidgety and like wanting to get out, you know. And she sort of quite curtly said, dragged me to her side and said, like, I want you to go into this painting. I want you to go into the painting and explore it. And it was a scene of, um, like, like a, I suppose you call it a chaotic crowd scene, and I imagined that she wanted, you know, that she wanted me to imagine myself as one of the characters in the painting, uh-huh. and therefore think about the, you know, that what was, what was happening there, you know. But she meant it at a different level. She meant, you know, it, to experience that painting from the artist's point of view, from sure. the viewer's point of view, to, under, to, to understand the construction of that painting, and you know, and I sort of. Where did she get that from? Do you know what I think she was probably just frustrated? With me. <laughs> She just needed me to shut just up. So go she, in the painting. So she could do. So she could enjoy the art. You know, that's <laughs> what it was. I think we stopped here because um, th- this is a, a sort of a good news story. So I grew up, you know, quite close to here, uh-huh. and we had the kestrels were in the 1970s were the most populous raptor we had in the UK, and I was massively fond of them. We very rarely they aren't sh- anymore. No buzzards took over. Of course, yeah, buzzards took over. But, with, you know, the key thing was that we didn't see sparrowhawks when I was a kid because the pesticide uh, crisis had hit them really hard. That pesticide crisis, as opposed to the one we've got now. And um, a deer going through over oh there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there we are. Row. It's nice to see the row. I should hasten to add that the deer management here doesn't involve 
shooting the row. That's nice. Look at that white backside. So white, isn't it? I love the white bottom. So it's like a flag. How do they keep it so clean? I don't know. They've got the cleanest backsides in. The amount of stuff that I have to sort of mat out of my dog's. But anyway. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, look. So no sparrowhawks. They've been persecuted as well, of course. And then I remember in the, in the 70s finding my first sparrowhawk nest in Dummer's Copse, climbing up to it in a little birch tree. Gosh, I was so excited. So that was about 1976, actually. But anyway, the reason we stopped here is that their big cousin, the goshawk, have, have recovered in many places their range. They were extirpated at the beginning of the last century, mm-hmm. as you know, and they've come back and they breed in this wood. And they used to breed in the adjacent wood. And in the last few years, they moved here. I'll show you one of the old nests just up here. Last year, they bred just out here. And, and, and at this time of the year, maybe a little later, or a little early, if I'm very honest with you, on a, on a nice clear morning, they will go to the nesting area and they make a very quiet call. So I come here and I sit over here with, my, um, with Sid and Nancy and they have to- These are the new dogs. The new poodles, yeah. And they have to be quiet. And we sit down and we just listen for the goshawks. They're so difficult to see, they're very shy, but they make this little cheeping call, uh, which is like a pre-breeding uh, call between the, t- the two. And, and then that, that obviously tells you that they are here and they're on territory and they're going to be nesting, uh-huh. which is exciting. And then I leave them alone until they're you know, obviously going to be well underway. And then I go sneaking through the woods to see if I can find their... Um, their nest. But the idea of goshawks, I mean, if you'd have told the 14-year-old Chris that it was going to be a goshawk nest that he'd go and look at, he'd have burst. You know? <laughs> so some things have recovered. And, and again, just joining the circle. But that's through human beings helping out. That's well, not... It's, not, it's, it's stopping killing them. Although, yeah. very sadly, they are still persecuted. Five were picked up the other day. We've yeah. put, contributed some money towards a, a potential reward um, for any information about who killed those goshawks. They were left in a very provocative manner. So yeah, I mean there are parts of the country which are still not, you know, populated with these birds, but they should be. I mean in Berlin they nest in there's 19 pairs nesting in Berlin, mm-hmm. in, in in the city, and they could nest in our cities feeding on pigeons and grey squirrels. So, but they're not because of persecution, unfortunately. But anyway, they live here. There's no persecution around here, thank thank goodness. And um, yeah, such a treat to see them. One so during lockdown one. A, a juvenile flew into the uh, a, flew into a window in the in the house. I heard this enormous bang. Dogs kicked off. Uh, I ran out and there was a goshawk floundering around on the flagstones. So it stunned itself. So I picked it up, took it to the um, Court Conservancy Trust, who have a bird of prey hospital. Yeah, not too far away. Yeah, and um, they patched it up and then Megs released it back in the in the, in the woods here, which was just amazing. So, I mean, that is just incredible. You know, God, it was one of the highlights of. Well, not for the gospel, unfortunately, but for us, you know, to be able to, you know, see it, in, you know, up close, yeah. smell it, and then to, you know, to take it somewhere where it was nurtured back to recovery, and then to be able to release it was so satisfying. So know? much of, of your childhood, based upon me having read your memoirs, and so much of your professional career is spent about being up close with nature, even if it's with a, a camera trap or the like. Do you think you have to be up close to it to really appreciate it? Or do you think maybe the, the success of future biodiversity is about learning to appreciate nature from a greater length, greater distance. Well, look, I'm carrying my binoculars here. Um, as a kid, I used to keep birds of prey. I have no desire to do so any longer. Um, I learned, you know, I, I was keeping them at that point of transition whereby I, I was 
you know, becoming aware of the fact that I could learn more about something in its habitat. Mm -hmm. So here, there's the old old nest there in that pine. Up in the Scots and, um, oh, wow. yeah. hello. And there was a, that was, uh, so that was three years ago. That was Why do they leave that one? Do they leave it every year? Yeah, well, they, they didn't, they stopped using that one because obviously, as I mentioned before, oh, um, yes. there's some woodland management going on here. Um, and the goshawks had already moved just over here. Uh -huh. So we, that, that went ahead. I don't think they could go back. They like it a little bit more enclosed than that. And we have you to, tempted to go up and have a look? I mean, it's some I see, as a kid, that's again, 30 like, feet above the ground. Oh, I mean, I'd get up that tree. I'm, I wouldn't have any trouble trying that tree even at the age of 61. But um, again, you know, it's that thing, you know. I, so I sat here that summer with my binoculars, a little place somewhere here, I think, uh -huh. where, where I could peep through and I could see it. And I've got to that point where I'd rather, you know, observe things in, in the wild than keep them in captivity. Uh -huh. So I don't keep anything like that any longer unless it's there's a very specific purpose for How it. many birds of prey did you train? Man, is it manning, isn't it, when you Manning is the process a... of taming them. That's it. I had kestrels, we had barn kestrels, owls. Kestrels, plural? Yeah. Um, barn owls, plural? Yeah, barn owls. So we had five barn owls. Up until um, the age of you being not the barn owl's age? Yeah, no. So when I went to university, that was the end of it all. But I mean, basically... Did you just release them? or No, no. The, so the captive birds that I had, I only had one at that point, which I passed on to someone else. And then I'd, I'd always sort of said at that point, you know, when I retire, that's what you say when you're, when you're 20, isn't it? <laughs> when I retire, there's no, no danger of that happening. Um, when I retire, I'd go back and, and obviously the goshawk was at that time, you know, was a, the, the prize of any a falconer. And I knew someone who had a, a beautiful goshawk. Uh -huh. and I, I, it was such a remarkable animal. And I, I coveted it and I, and I wanted to, to explore a relationship with, with those birds. But I don't know, it's died under my, under my feet, really. I, I just, I'm, I'm much happier sat here now just watching, watching those wild birds than I would be trying to coax one into a relationship which I, I don't really need to have and nor does it you know so I'm not suggesting that we we shouldn't keep some of these birds in captivity there are you know very good reasons to argue that that's great for education it's certainly great for conservation mm -hmm. um, it's just the personal thing I I don't want to go back to that myself I'm very happy with my um, canine companions why poodles what are there any other breeds of dog? <laughs> why, why would anyone entertain a relationship with anything but a poodle? Um, they're smart. They learn really quickly. Uh, they're anarchic, ebullient. Um, Miniature poodles. Middle size, yeah, middle the middle sized ones, yeah. Uh -huh. And um, top middle button. Yeah, I mean the middle size because management issues. They fit in the car. They're very loyal. Um, they form very close bonds. I Do mean, you think they form as close a bond with you as you form with them? Yeah. Because yeah. I think my dog has, but she's basically only interested in food, and it's not really me. Well, you say that, but um, they did some tests at the Clever Dog Lab in Vienna, and they showed, that they, you know, looking at dogs in an MRI scanner, and saw that they, they, they were stimulated to be more rewarded by the return of their owner than they were a sausage. So although, I mean, many dogs do have a, you know... A, a, How big was the sausage then? <laughs> I don't know. Scientifically, they would have all been measured and weighed. And <laughs> the standard deviation of sausage As, would as were the owners, the owner to sausage ratio. <coughs> There's a breaking point where so they no, prefer one to the other. But I mean, I, I, you know, I do everything I can to forge the, you know, the, the deepest, most productive bond with my, with my dogs that I can. And, and you know, and I, it's a bit like <laughs> with Megs, you know, I think if you enjoy your dogs and you, know, you enjoy your children, then you'll want them with you and, and, and they will have a 
sort of a richer life as a result, you know. If, if your kid's badly behaved and bad-mannered and you don't want to take it to a, <coughs> you know, a public space because you're embarrassed by it, then the kid loses out. So it's worth sure, you know, well teaching them the fundamentals of being able to be you know, sociable. I have on occasion got my dog and my daughter's names the wrong way round. <laughs> well, yeah. And yeah. I think that's probably perfectly <coughs> acceptable. Yeah, I think that's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> you know, I think it's got to keep that relationship on an even keel. Then. Right, before I risk being boycotted or blacklisted by broadcasting the similarities between how I raised my daughter and how I trained my dog, I think I should stop there, don't you? At least for a short while. So, unless you kindly subscribe to us on Patreon, in which case the second half of this interview is already awaiting your delightfully philanthropic ears, you will have to wait one whole week to hear more from Chris. Next Tuesday, you'll hear us talk about the art that inspires Chris, about how he took the government to court. We clarify exactly how Terry Nutkins lost his fingers and how Chris was partially eaten by a vulture. You know, all the important stuff. And you'll learn how much of the modern BBC natural history programming owes a massive debt of gratitude to none other than the Aston Martin DB6. Seriously. If you cannot wait a week, as I said, you're very welcome to join us on Patreon. Otherwise, you will find our back catalogue of interviews all at treesacrowd.fm. Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you all back here in one week's time. Thank you again for listening. Bye-bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.